Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. This is Abdul Nasser Jangda. If you enjoy and benefit from listening to our podcast, please donate to Qalam by visiting supportqalam.com. We love being able to share this content for free with you, and your donation ensures that we are always able to do so. Each podcast we produce has tens of thousands of listeners. So the opportunity for gaining immense reward by supporting this effort is endless, inshallah. You never know who will be able to benefit from your contributions and donations. Jazakumullahu khairan. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Inshallah, continuing with our study of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Asiratul Nabawiyah, the prophetic biography. In the previous session, we started talking about the khutbah of Hajjatul Wida'ah, the farewell, uh, the sermon rather, of the farewell pilgrimage uh, of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now we've been talking about Hajjatul Wida and the farewell pilgrimage for quite a number of sessions, um, but we reached the point where we talked about the day of Arafah, the day of Arafah, the main day of Hajj. Now at this particular juncture, we're taking the moment and the opportunity to pause the discussion of what transpired on the following days of Hajj and the conclusion of the Hajj to talk about the khutbah of the Prophet ﷺ that he gave on the day of Arafah in the place of Arafat. This again, um, just to reiterate what we talked about previously in the first session on the khutbah, this is the most monumental address of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. And as I mentioned previously, there are a number of scholars and authors um, who have written about the khutbah of the Prophet ﷺ, everything that we can learn from it, everything that we can take from it, and literally hundreds, without exaggeration, hundreds of pages have been written about this particular address, sermon of the Prophet ﷺ, and everything we can learn from it. And so we started off with the sermon from the very beginning. The, and as I also mentioned, for the purposes of just the academic integrity of it, um, and that is that the full form of the khutbah that we're going through, that many of the scholars of hadith um, have generally agreed upon, this has been pieced together and compiled together from a number of different narrations from the different companions. So we started at the beginning, we got about halfway through, and so I felt that in order to be able to at least attempt to you know, show the proper respect to the words and the message and the legacy of the Prophet some that we would take our time and we would split it up into at least two sessions. So starting from where we left off, the Prophet ﷺ, very quickly to recap what he talked about, the Prophet ﷺ, after beginning with the praise and the glorification of Allah, the Prophet ﷺ said the uh, testimony of faith, after which he emphasized the significance and the importance of taqwa upon the believers. The Prophet ﷺ then spoke about the sanctity of life, 
property, dignity of every single person and how it is even more sacred than the sacred acts of worship and the sacred places of the Hajj. The Prophet ﷺ then talked about the importance of honesty, integrity and trustworthiness. The Prophet ﷺ then addressed the importance of financial ethics in Islam and talked about how riba, usury and interest is something that is impermissible and will not be allowed in Islam going forth. The Prophet ﷺ also talked about how any tribal, um, for lack of a better, any tribal enmities and animosities, what we would call in more common language a grudge, that a family had against another family or a tribe had against another tribe because of something that happened generations ago. Apparently, I've been told that my great-great-grandfather had a fight with your great-great-grandfather and that's why I'm trying to murder you now, right? This type of mentality, this was something that unfortunately, tragically, was very prevalent in Arabia at that time. And the Prophet ﷺ said, from this day going forth, none of us are going to indulge in this any longer. The bonds are the bonds of faith and belief, and that's what we're going to um, revere, and that's what we're going to acknowledge going forth. The Prophet ﷺ, furthermore, he said something very um, serious. Um, the Prophet ﷺ said that someone who is convicted of murdering another person, deliberately murdering someone, then that person will face capital punishment if convicted. And secondly, if someone is responsible for the accidental death of another person, their negligence or their recklessness causes the the, the tragic death of another person, then they will be responsible for what is called the dia, blood money roughly translated, basically reparations of a hundred camels will be made to the family of the deceased. And this is something of course the Quran speaks about as well. From here the Prophet ﷺ, he after addressing some of these very important foundational legal principles about fi financial ethics, uh, about the sanctity of life, and the consequences of violating that sanctity, the Prophet ﷺ now will address um, some social issues that are of, again, great significance and importance. He says, أَمَّا بَعْدُ And again, أَمَّا بَعْدُ is kind of a, uh, a statement that says, as for what follows. It is a way to regain people's attention. He says, "Amma ba'd," and as for what follows, he says, "Ayyuhannasa, O people, continue to listen. For inna shaytana qad yaisa min an yu'abda bi ardikum hadhi abda." Listen very carefully, he says, people. Shaytan has given up hope. Shaytan has become hopeless. He has given up hope of ever being worshipped in this land ever again. Shaitan knows that people in this land, in Arabia, will never worship Shaitan ever again. Now there's a little bit of a question here. Before Islam, the people in that region, in that area, we know that they used to worship idols, but they didn't worship Shaitan. So what does the Prophet ﷺ mean? And again, what the Prophet ﷺ is alluding to is that something that is as... Um, false, as um, illogical, and as evil as worshipping idols, stone, 
wood carved idols. Something that is that evil can only be a product of the work of shaitan. That can only be the product of the work of shaitan. And the only way that someone can legit, someone can actually, someone can actually continue to worship an idol is if they are completely deluded by shaitan. Otherwise, it's, in, it's inconceivable. It's inconceivable that someone would worship something they carved with their own hands. And so that's what it means that they used to worship shaitan in that earth. But the Prophet ﷺ here is saying that shaitan knows that from this day on forward, no matter how bad things may become, how irreligious people may become, how they might start violating all different rulings of the religion, people might become lax within their prayers, people might start behaving very badly with one another. The one line that they will never ever cross ever again is worshiping idols. That's never going to happen. And one of my teachers always used to you know, say something about this about this point of the Prophet ﷺ, that you can find, you know, you can come across a Muslim in the most wretched state imaginable. Try to imagine a Muslim in the worst position possible. Right? Imagine somebody who's intoxicated, sitting at, you know, uh, sitting in a casino, gambling, with someone who is not their spouse next to them. Like imagine all major sins combined. This person is sitting, fraternizing with someone who is not their spouse of the opposite gender, gambling and while consuming intoxicant, while consuming alcohol. All in one right there. And, you know, this person has no concern about what, what Islam says about anything. Anything. But if you walk up to that person in that state and in that condition and you say to them, you probably worship idols as well. That person will want to fight you. What'd you say to me? What'd you say? Yeah, you're probably mushrik, you worship idols. That guy will want to fight you. Partially because he's drunk, but he'll also want to fight you because he's offended that you would dare say that he worships an idol. I worship Allah. La ilaha illallah. Right? Beer in one hand, la ilaha illallah with the other hand. Right? But it's something, you know, all jokes aside, it's, it's quite fascinating the power and, the, the, and how captivating and how powerful tawheed, oneness of God is. Once it enters your being, even though someone might have buried it, with all these sins and delusions, that Tawheed never leaves you. Never truly leaves you. And this is why we see that even in Islamic history, even at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, tragically and unfortunately, very rare, one or two cases here and there, when somebody would defect from the community or become a traitor to the community, it's not like they would embrace some other religion. It was more of a political thing. I was even reading um, this uh, research that was conducted out of the University of Michigan where they were talking about crisis of faith in the Muslim community and people leaving Islam and claiming to no longer be Muslim. They found that the vast overwhelming majority, in fact, they said majority of them 
said they, you know, because of their own issues, they had left Islam, they claimed, but they would not claim another religion. They would not claim another religion. And the few of them, a few, literally, such a small percentage, I forget the exact number, but single digit percentage, the single digit percentage, a few of them, who actually said, yeah, I joined the Christian community, when they were asked point blank, do you accept Jesus as your Lord? They said, no, I can't. I can't. And this is someone who, quote unquote, is defecting from the Muslim community and claiming to be part of another community but cannot embrace that belief. There's something that is just, it's the ultimate truth, the oneness of God. It is the ultimate truth. And that's what the Prophet ﷺ is acknowledging here and reminding us here, إِنَّ الشَّيْطَانَ قَدْ يَعِسَ أَنْ يُعْبَدَ بِأَرْضِكُمْ هَذِهِ Shaitan knows you will never worship idols here ever again. However, أَبَدًا, ever. However, وَلَكِنَّهُ He's got a backup plan. Shaitan always has a backup plan. We don't have a backup plan. Shaitan always has a backup plan. وَلَكِنَّهُ إِنْ يُطَعْ فِي مَا سِوَى ذَلِكَ but if he can get you to obey him, if he can be obeyed, if he can be listened to, if he can get you to listen to him in other things, he's more than happy with that. What are some of the other things he wants us to listen to him in regards to? He, the Prophet explains, بِمَا تَحْقِرُونَ مِنْ أَعْمَالِكُمْ The things that you overlook, the things that you overlook, right? The things that you feel that you say are not that important. Salah, you know, Quran, how you talk to one another, telling a little lie here and there, little little things. He just he's going to chip away at you. He knows that you won't sell out your deen completely wholesale. He says that's fine. I'll make you go bankrupt over the next thirty years. If I can't rob you, if I can't just take your house out, completely rob you of your home in one go, in one shot, that's okay. I'll chip away at you for the next 30 years, but I will make it so that you're bankrupt by the time you're dead. And that's shaitan's plan. And that's why, you know, subhanAllah, it's a fascinating statement. It's an expression they would say, the devil is in the, the details. The devil is in the details. That's the idea behind it. That's where he strikes, in the details, in the periphery, in the small little things. And I use quotation marks to say that because nothing is small, little, insignificant. But in the things that you might very easily overlook when you're not paying very close attention. The Prophet ﷺ then talks about a second very important issue that... <clears throat> At first, when we talk about it, it might not seem very pertinent or relevant, but I'll explain what the issue is. Then the Prophet says, So he says, So be very cautious and be careful of when it comes to shaitan in your deen. Oh, it's not. Okay. <clears throat> So, the next thing that the Prophet ﷺ addressed and that he talked about here, 
The Prophet ﷺ, he says, Ayyuhan nas, O people, إِنَّمَا النَّسِيءُ زِيَادَةٌ فِي الْكُفْرِ يُضِلُّ بِهِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا يُحِلُّونَهُ عَامًا وَيُحَرِّمُونَهُ عَامًا لِيُوَاطِئُوا عِدَّةَ مَا حَرَّمَ اللَّهِ فَيُحِلُّ مَا حَرَّمَ اللَّهِ <coughs> The Prophet ﷺ quoted a verse from the Qur'an from Surah At-Tawbah. The verse basically says that النَّسِي Nasi means the distortion of the calendar, the distortion of dates, the distortion of the calendar where today's Tuesday, but we, and I'll explain what the motivation is, but we arbitrarily make it Thursday. And then we'll call tomorrow Tuesday, and then we'll make it Wednesday, and then we'll reset on Friday. Okay? Somebody could say, what's the point behind that? I'll explain in just a moment. Allah says, this practice of distorting the calendar, ziyadatun fil kufr. This further exposes people's disbelief, their kufr. Yudillu bihilladina kafaru. The people who disbelieve, this is how they misguide others. Yuhillunahu aman. One year, they change the dates around so that they are able to do what they want. Wayuharimunahu aman. And the next year, they switch the dates back so that they can prevent someone else from doing what they want to do. They switch it one way for themselves and switch it back another way to restrict someone else. I'll explain all of this. They do this so that they can do what God has forbidden and they can make permissible what God, what God had said was not permissible. <clears throat> now allow me to explain what this means. In particularly pre-Islamic legislation, pre-Islamic legislation, what I mean by that is, in the legislation of the prophets of the past, okay, Ibrahim alayhi salam, Musa alayhi salam, Isa alayhi salam, these prophets, there were four months of the Islamic calendar, the lunar calendar rather, there were four months of the lunar calendar, they are the months of, um, uh, Dhul Qa'da, Dhul Hijjah, Muharram, and then the month of Rajab. Dhul Qa'da, Dhul Hijjah, Muharram, and then the month of Rajab. These were the four months of the calendar that were considered sacred months. These were the sacred months. <clears throat> and what they would do. The rule about these sacred months is that you are not allowed to engage in warfare, fighting, combat during these months. Now how would that work? Rajab is the seventh month of the lunar calendar. Rajab is the seventh month of the lunar calendar. So what that means is that if they had a battle that was going on, two tribes are fighting against one another. In Jumad al-Ula, in Jumad al-Thani, during the fifth month, the sixth month. And then the first day of Rajab comes, the month of Rajab begins. They have to call a ceasefire. Islamically, legally, they have to call a ceasefire. And they put down their arms and they move away. They can stay there, camp out across from one another, whatever it is. But no arrows can be launched, no combat can occur, no fighting can happen. 
And for 30 days, it will be an automatic ceasefire. 29 or 30 days, depending how long the month is. As soon as the month of Sha'ban comes in, the eighth month, they can resume their fighting. And then they continue fighting, let's say, through the eighth, ninth month of, and tenth month, Sha'ban, Ramadan, Shawwal, and then the first day of Dhul Qa'da, the eleventh month. The first day comes, ceasefire. And now there will be no fighting for three months consecutively. Dhul Qa'da, Dhul Hijjah, Muharram. 11, 12, and the first month of the following year. No more fighting. So 90 days, ceasefire. They would go back to their homes. And then if they wanted to continue, they'd return back. And on the first day of the second month, Safar, as soon as the second month started, they resumed their combat. They resumed the war. This was the rule. This was the rule. So what the Arabs who were basically the, many of them were directly actually, the descendants of the Prophet Ibrahim and Ismail salam, And overall they inherited the religion of Abraham and the religion of Ismail. Right? But of course they had changed it and distorted. They were worshipping idols. But what they would do is when the sacred months were come, would come, so let's say two tribes, tribe A and tribe B, are fighting against one another. The month of Rajab comes. But the day before the month of Rajab, tribe A is making, is gaining ground. Tribe A is pushing back tribe B. They're days away from victory. They're days away from victory. And the month of Rajab comes. What they started eventually doing was tribe A would say, not to worry, we're going to swap months. Rajab is month number, supposed to be month number seven. And then Sha'ban is month number eight. We're just going to swap them. We're just going to swap them. We're going to move up Sha'ban and we'll delay Rajab. That gives us 30 days. We get our victory. We defeat our enemy. And then we'll observe Rajab. We'll do that. Now, that's not allowed. That's problematic in and of itself. But then the following year, some people would say, okay, we've changed the months, right? So we're going to keep it that way, Sha'ban and then Rajab. Then they would say, maybe it was the other way around. Tribe B is trying to attack them. So then they would say, no, 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 we switched it back. So you can't attack us. Rajab just started, now you can't attack us. So they would just swap around. And all tribes were doing their own calendars. And everybody is swapping around, whatever they want. It's just chaos. It's just chaos. Right? Imagine Ramadan is coming. And it's supposed to be really hot. It's in the summertime, so we swap it for December. Right? We're just, we're just going to swap it for a later month. That'd be problematic. That's not okay. It's chaos. It's unruliness. It's a lack of discipline. There's no submission. There's no obedience. And that exactly is the problem. Now, when you hear this, it sounds like a historical thing. Okay, the Prophet said, we're resetting the calendar. No one's ever going to do this ever again. That makes sense. But how is that? What is the relevant lesson in it for us? The lesson in it for us is do not play games with the sharia of Allah. Do not play games with the rules of Islam. When Allah told you to do something, do what you've been do what Allah told you to do, when He told you to do it, how He told you to do it, where He told you to do it. No playing these games. 
but rather do exactly what Allah has commanded you to do. And the way that that could become problematic is like I just mentioned. All of a sudden if somebody came up with this solution, and I'm using quotation marks, sarcastically I'm calling it a solution. If somebody came up with this supposed solution, you know Ramadan during the summertime, it's too much to handle, and so we're just going to swap it for the winter time, and we're just going to always switch around Ramadan so that it always stays in the winter time. It's easy, the days are shorter, so on and so forth. That is playing games with the religion. That's how that would be problematic. Prayer times. Oh brother, you pray whenever you reach a destination. Allah is ghafoor rahim. Allah wants ease for you brother. Allah wants ease for you. But that would be problematic. And that's what this is condemning. Alright? And the Prophet explains, Time has been moving forth since God created the heavens and the earth. And he quoted the subsequent verse of Surah At-Tawbah that the duration of the year according to God as Allah decreed it is 12 months. Do not move this calendar around. Minha arba'atun hurum. There are four sacred months. <clears throat> the next issue the Prophet ﷺ addresses, he says, Ayyuhannas, O people, listen. And this is a very important issue. He says, Inna linisa'ikum alaykum haqqa. He says that your women have a right upon you. The Prophet ﷺ on this particular day, at this momentous occasion, the Prophet ﷺ talked about the very important issue of the dignified, um, ethical, responsible, respectful treatment of women. And again, we all are extremely familiar with the indignity that women suffered before Islam, in the Arabian Peninsula before Islam. We've all talked about it, we've read about it in our Sira books and history books, that it was terrible. But you think about the significance and the relevance of this message of the Prophet even today. Without going into too many details, but we're all generally aware of a lot of the conversation and the discourse, the issues that have been going on in society, pertaining to the indignities that women have to suffer, right? In the workplace, in the public setting, in the public setting, the indignities. And not only that, but then furthermore, the violation of rights and abuse that happens even within people's homes. And this is something the Prophet ﷺ had no tolerance for. And he said, And you have rights upon them as well. This is a relationship. It's a mutual, mutually beneficial relationship. And then the Prophet ﷺ, he said that, لَكُمْ فُرُشَكُمْ غَيْرَكُمْ وَلَا يُدْخِلْنَا أَحَدًا تَكْرَهُنَهُ بُيُوتَكُمْ He says that you have the right that your women folk should respect your privacy and not allow anyone into your room or your private domain that you would not approve of. That is your right. A right to privacy and respectful treatment and dignity. 
وَلَا يَأْتِينَ بِفَحِشَةٍ And that they should not, again, engage in inappropriate conduct or behavior. فَإِن فَعَلْنَا But if they end up doing something that could violate the sanctity of the home and the family, something very serious, فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ قَدْ أَذِينَ لَكُمْ Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created, has allowed certain mechanisms for you to be able to try to repair the situation and correct this wrong. أَن تَهْجُرُوهُنَّ فِي الْمَضَاجِعِ That a couple takes some time apart for separation, to reevaluate things. And then the Prophet ﷺ addressed this, that is also addressed within the Qur'an, but it requires a lot of understanding of what it implies. That the Prophet ﷺ said that you may communicate, if need be, the severity of the situation. Communicating the severity of the situation. And this specifically is talking about some of the gestures and the, the, the cultural aspects of communicating. That when you're trying to really communicate the severity of something to someone, you grab them by the shoulders. You shake them. You tell them, do you understand what you're doing? So you may communicate that. But again, how this is interpreted a lot of times as this is giving some type of license for what is called violence and domestic abuse. That is not allowed and nor is it permissible in any way, shape or form. And that has a very long detailed understanding and explanation. And he said, of course, if they desist, if they cease and desist, they stop doing whatever they were doing that was destroying the family, destroying the home, then you go, you go, you can return things back to normal. You go back to normal. Where once again, you are responsible for supporting them, taking care of them, and you can start to live your life together again. Then the, after addressing a very drastic situation, the Prophet ﷺ once again returns to the general advice in regards to women folk and family. He says, Always be good to women. And he used the word, which basically is a very strong word. It means no matter what you do, always be good to your women. That they are aids and supporters and partners for you. That you have that position of responsibility, like a, a husband has a position of responsibility in regards to his wife, but that is a trust that Allah gave you. There's a lot of talk a lot of times about authority, who has authority. Not authority, it's responsibility. And that responsibility is not because you are God's gift to humanity, and you're such a superior creature that you have the, uh, the responsibility. No, you have responsibility be amanatillah, because God gave it to you. So you have to answer Allah, whether you will fulfill your responsibility or not. And think about it. There is a very serious ruling in Islam that women maintain their privacy. The privacy of a woman is a very serious and sacred thing in Islam. Where a woman does not grant private access to anyone. Except for her husband. And a woman grants 
access to her in her private space. She grants access to her privacy to her husband. Why? When? When the name of Allah is invoked. What is, the, what is that ceremony called that gives this man the right to be in private with this woman? We call it nikah. And how does the contract of nikah begin? Alhamdulillah. It begins with the name of Allah. Ya ayyuhannasu taqu rabbakum. It begins with the name of Allah. So the only reason why you, Allah is speaking to the men, the husbands, the only reason why you have access to this woman is by the virtue of the name of Allah. So respect the sanctity of this relationship. That when a husband and a wife come together, they come together because Allah brought them together. Always respect that. That's a sacred relationship. Then the Prophet ﷺ says something very interesting. Right? <clears throat> a lot of times, you know, public speaking techniques and things like that, we discuss them. He says, Because he talked about something that's so sensitive, so personal, right? If I sat here, or if somebody gives me, I'll flip it on myself. If somebody gives me advice about salah, yeah, thank you, jazakallah khair, yes, yes, of course, of course. Somebody gives me advice about reading Quran, of course, absolutely. Somebody gives me advice about akhlaq, mashallah, mashallah, jazakallah khair, tabarakallah. Somebody gives me advice about how to treat my family, watch yourself. Oh, easy there now. Right? Careful. Right? Because it's something very private. We get very sensitive. It's very personal. But Allah and His Messenger وسلم, can advise. Allah commands us in our family. The Prophet gives us advice in regards to our family. And they have every right to do so. And the Prophet ﷺ knew that especially in the pre-Islamic Arabian, Arab culture, there was a high level of sensitivity about this. And so the Prophet ﷺ, after giving such sensitive advice, he says, hey, do you understand? You know when you say something really kind of hard to swallow? Afterwards you say, understand? You get it? Huh? Nod, let me know. Okay, very good. Right? You have to. Because you know that the person is holding back a little bit. They're a bit defensive. So you have to say, no, no, no. I know this is hard, but I need you to listen. The Prophet said, فَعْقِلُوا Think about it. Think about what I'm saying. Think about what I'm saying. Then the Prophet goes on. He says, أَيُّهَنَّاسُ Oh people. And this is so powerful and beautiful. إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ إِخْوَةٌ said the believers are family. The believers are like a family. And what's very interesting, I won't spend too much time on this, but ikhwa is the plural of sibling. However, there are two plurals for siblings in the Qur'an. There's ikhwa, which means like biological siblings, and ikhwan, which is used more figuratively. Like when we talk about brothers in Islam, Ikhwan, Ikhwan al-Shayateen. Like Allah says, do not be the brothers of shaitan. Right? Not the biological siblings of shaitan. Don't act like you are affiliated to the shaitan. Right? But are all believers, Muslim brothers and sisters, are we biological siblings? No, we're not. But Allah means to say, we're like family, but He uses the word for biological siblings to emphasize, think about how 
loyal I am, I need to think about how loyal I am to my younger sister, how loyal I am to my younger brother, where I would give my right arm to my brother. I would sell everything I own to help my sister. You should try, at least aspire, at least try to have a similar loyalty to your Muslim brother, to your Muslim sister. إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ إِخْوَةً Then the Prophet says, فَلَا يَحِلُّ لِإِمْرِئٍ مَالُ أَخِيهِ Therefore, it is never okay for any person to violate the property of their brother. If I steal something from Umar, that makes me a bad person. That's bad. But if I steal something from my own sibling, Abdullah, my own younger brother, there's something really wrong with me. And that's what he's saying. The only time you should ever put your hands on someone else's property is if they allow you to. Then the Prophet ﷺ starts to conclude the message. He says, Have I conveyed the message to you? The message of Islam. Have I conveyed the message to you? And they all responded, yes. So the Prophet said, Allahumma ashhad. Allah, you be my witness. And then he said, فَلَا He said two things. I, I end, I, I'm wrapping up here by saying two things. Number one, the Prophet ﷺ, he says, do not turn back on your, do not go back to kufr after I am gone. Do not leave your Islam after I leave. Do not turn your back on God after I'm gone. He said, and number two, do not turn on one another. Do not kill each other. Do not fight each other. Do not hate each other. Don't go after each other. Because I am leaving you with a resource, with a treasure, with a blessing. That if you hold on to it, you will never ever lose your way ever again. You will never lose your way. Kitab Allah wa sunnata nabiyyihi. The book of God, the Quran. And the practice, the tradition, the sunnah, the way of the Prophet of God. Never leave these two things. And we've all heard this before, Quran and sunnah. But the, the point that I want to make here that I, I feel is very important for me to remember. And that is, there's a difference between using it as a slogan. Quran and Sunnah, Quran and Sunnah, Quran and Sunnah. It's on billboards and banners and we're chanting it and we're writing it in the signature of our emails. Right? Just slogan, Turn it, turning it into a cheap slogan. And versus living it. And you know what the question of living it is? I need to ask myself, we all need to ask ourselves, how much of the Quran do we actually read? How much of it do we understand? How much of it do we study? How much do we know of what the Quran says? And number two, 
the sunnah of the Prophet For you know, not even going to talking about more extensive, complicated things, deep issues. How much about the life of the Prophet do we actually know? I understand, I'm asking that question in the middle of a seerah class. But no, really think about it. How much of the life of the Prophet do I actually know? So the Prophet is telling us, study the Qur'an, know the life of the Prophet and you'll be okay. You'll always find your way. And then once again, once again he asked, Ala hal ballaghtu? Have I conveyed the message? They all responded, Yes, O Messenger of Allah. And he said, Allahumma ashhadu Allah, you be my witness. And then the Prophet ﷺ, he wrapped up the last major point the Prophet ﷺ made was a very powerful point. And there's something so beautiful in how the Prophet ﷺ structured this. He started off by emphasizing God consciousness. Then he talked about some of the very complicated, difficult issues in the middle. But he's ending on this very, you know, inspirational and powerful point. He says, Ayyuhannas inna rabbakum wahidun. He says, Oh people, remember, your Lord is one. Your Lord is one. Wa inna abakum wahidun. You all descend from the same father. Adam. Kullukum li Adam. All of you came from the lineage of Adam. Alayhi salam. Wa Adamu min turab. And Adam was created from dust. Inna akramakum indallahi atqakum. The most noble amongst you is the one who is the most conscious of God. Inna akramakum indallahi atqakum. And then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he says, وَلَيْسَ لِعَرَبِيًّا فَضْلٌ عَلَىٰ عَجَمِي إِلَّا بِتَقْوَىٰ No Arab is inherently superior to a non-Arab unless or only by way of having taqwa, God consciousness. The only thing that gives any person any kind of virtue is their relationship with Allah is how conscious they are of Allah. And guess what? In a more extended version, the Prophet ﷺ, he says, when he says that, he points at his chest and he says, At-taqwa ha-huna, at-taqwa ha-huna, at-taqwa ha-huna. Taqwa is here, taqwa is here, taqwa is here. And he taps himself on the chest three times. Meaning taqwa is inside, it's hidden. I can't see it, you can't see it. And if the only thing that makes one person better than the other person is their level of taqwa, the truth, the sincerity, the consciousness, the quality of their relationship with Allah, and nobody can really see that or gauge that, only Allah knows, that basically means as far as I'm concerned, everybody is deserving of my respect. Nobody is better than anybody. Allah will decide who's better than whom. And Allah will do that in the hereafter on the Day of Judgment. Till then, we don't need to worry about it. And one little point that I'll make here, that I feel is, again, very important. When the Prophet ﷺ, in some extended narrations, he does say in other places, وَلَيْسَ لِي أَحْمَرَ عَلَىٰ أَسْوَدِ فَضْلٌ وَلَا لِلْأَسْوَدِ عَلَىٰ الْأَحْمَرِ فَضْلٌ 
He says no black person is better than a white person, no white person is inherently better than a black person, etc. So he does say that in some places, but here in the khutbah of Hajjatul Wida, in the majority of the places where he made this comment, he specifically said no Arab is better than a non-Arab, and no non-Arab is inherently better than an Arab. And there's something very profound about the Prophet ﷺ using that mechanism or identifying that element of being Arab. Because there are many, unfortunately, there are many things that people use to divide themselves up. Color, race, and language is one of those things. And if we know that if there is any language that does have any virtue or significance, it is the Arabic language. But the Prophet ﷺ is here saying, the Arabic language in and of itself has no virtue. What does that mean? If someone is a disbeliever and they speak Arabic, doesn't matter. Who cares? Doesn't make a difference. Arabic has significance if it's used to understand the Qur'an. Pray. Know the words of the Prophet ﷺ. But if I have a mastery of Arabic, and I don't believe, like a kafir, Abu Jahl knew better Arabic than all of us ever will. Right? Abu Jahl knew better Arabic than the best Arabic teacher. Does it make a difference? No, it doesn't. Doesn't matter. So this is why it's so profound the Prophet ﷺ says this. And then the Prophet ﷺ once again asks, Have I conveyed the message? They all responded, yes, O Messenger of Allah. He said, Allahumma ashhadu Allah, you be my witness. And then the Prophet ﷺ concluded, he said, let every single person who receives, who has either heard this message in person or receives this message, convey this message, relay this message, deliver this message to those who are not present, to those who have not yet received this message. And then he said, Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. And he concluded the sermon. This is the khutbah of Hajjatul Wida as delivered by the Prophet ﷺ during this Hajj. I'll conclude by mentioning a beautiful hadith that Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim, Imam Tirmidhi, Nasa'i, Imam Ahmad, all the major muhaddithun have mentioned this hadith in their books. A Jewish man came to Umar. He lived in the Muslim territory, so he says, O oh, leader of the Muslims, Y'all read a verse within your book, your sacred book. Had we had a similar verse in our book, we would celebrate it. And he was trying to basically take a shot. He's saying, you people don't even really fully appreciate your religion. You don't really, you're not very enthusiastic about your religion, so on and so forth. Umar radiallahu ta'ala said, wa ayyu ayatin hiya? What are you talking about? Qala qawluhu ta'ala, al-yawma akmaltu lakum deenakum wa atmamtu alaykum ni'mati wa radiyatu lakum al-islam adina. 
He mentioned the verse number three from Surah Al-Ma'idah, the portion of the verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Today I have completed for you your religion. I have fulfilled my blessing upon you and I have chosen for you Islam as a way of life. Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu said, Wallahi inni la'a'lamu al-yawm al-lazhi nazalata ala rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa sa'ata al-lazhi nazalat fiha ala rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam he said, I swear to God, I still remember the exact day that this verse was revealed upon the Prophet ﷺ in the exact moment on which it was revealed, in which it was revealed upon the Prophet ﷺ. He said, Nazalat fi It was the day of Friday. We were in the place of Arafat. It was the ninth day of the Hijjah, the most sacred day of the calendar, Yom Arafah. And that day was revealed upon the Prophet ﷺ. So don't tell me, don't lecture me about not knowing my religion and not being enthusiastic about my religion. I remember the exact moment and guess what? We do celebrate that day. Every year when that day comes around, we fast that day. Yawm Arafah, there are millions of Muslims standing there making dua and all the rest of us, what do we do? We fast that day. So we do celebrate that day. So don't talk to me about my religion. So that narration, I wanted to conclude with that. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything that's said and heard. Subhanallah bihamdihi, subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta, nasaghfirka wa natuwilayk.